Welcome to My Name is Not Steve, the podcast by storytellers about storytelling with people not named Steve. Hey, this is Pete Bauer. And I'm Dorothea Bauer. And this is My Name is Not Steve. We are still not named Steve. Nope. We are storytellers that like to talk about storytelling. Yes, we are. And so this this thing's called My Name is Not Steve, right? <laughs> yes. And that's because through my life, including my parents, they often called me Steve, even though my name is Peter. Which they gave you. Yeah. I mean, I kept telling them, look, you gave me this name. I mean, use it. <laughs> like This was your choice. But they already had a son named Steve, so it's not like they could have two Steves. That would be weird. Anyway, so we were at the dinner table the other night, and we were talking about confirmation names. So my middle name begins with an F, and I don't say it because my brother Charles would have made fun of me a lot as a child <laughs> for that middle name. But anyway, my wife is sitting there at the dinner table, and she says, okay, look, we know your name is Stephen F. What? And everyone just stared at her. <laughs> and she's like, what? And I'm like, you just called me Stephen for the first time. For the first time in 23 years of marriage, she called me Steve. <laughs> and she felt so bad because <laughs> she knows it's this running thing. So now my wife has joined the collective anti-Pete movement <laughs> when it comes to my name. Well, she never has been a fan of Pete. No, that's true. When we were, when we were thinking about kids' names, you know, um, you're named after her. That's not true. I am named after my grandmother's. <sighs> All right. That's the tradition. Well, there's four generations of Dorothea's. Yes. My point is, is that when you were you were coming into the world, I had no choice as to what <laughs> your name was going to be. Well, no, you can't ruin tradition. Dad. No. Dorothea, 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 and Dorothea. <laughs> but when we were going to have our son, I thought, well, Pete's a good name. And she's like, you know, I don't really like the name Pete. <laughs> and I'm like... Um, well, my name is Pete, but now that she's <laughs> called me Steve, I'm not so sure that she even believes that anymore. <laughs> it's quite sad. Well, I think it's funny that you wanted to name Gabe Pete because first of all, he's just, he's not a Pete at all. <laughs> and second of all, I don't know what that means. And I think I'm offended. <laughs> <laughs> you always give mom's family a hard time because they have five people in two names. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> And you almost fell into that trap. Uh, well, I'm Pete. This is my wife, Dorothea. And this is our daughter, Dorothea, and our son, Pete. <laughs> that, would have, that would have been weird, I guess. That's right, because my wife's family, her parents are Dorothea and Don. And that's the Dorothea you're named after officially. Because mm -hmm. your middle name is named after my mother. Right, grandmothers. Grow grandmothers. As is the tradition. <laughs> yeah, okay, we're moving on. <laughs> and her dad's name was Don, as in Donald. So it was Dorothea and Donald, and they had three children, which was Dorothea, mm -hmm. my wife, Dawn, D-A-W-N, for the sister, and then Don, as in <laughs> Donald. So it was five people, two names, Dorothea, Don, Dorothea, Don, Don. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yeah, that's why the show is named My Name is Not Steve, because it, apparently it needs to be said over and over and over again. Don, Dottie, dear, Don, Don. <laughs> yeah, see. That's what my my brother-in-law, Bob, came up with. It's, it's, it's awesome. Okay, so, um, Dorothea, what are we talking about today? What are we talking about today? That's a good question. We are talking about the challenge when you're, when you're creating a story. 
there's a challenge related to allowing the story to take the path it kind of needs to take on its own. Usually, characters, storylines, eventually, once you start writing them, once you start creating them, they start to become real, like three-dimensional real experiences in your brain. And the medication has nothing to do with that. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Actually, it helps. No. So... It just like the characters become real, and so they start having a will in your brain, you know, to do things that you didn't intend them to do or say things that you didn't intend them to say. And sometimes those actions of the characters will direct the story down a certain path that you may not have anticipated. Hopefully, if you've structured it well, your your heading, as we've talked about before, your end point, theoretically, should remain the same. But sometimes the characters can even change that. So there, there are some good examples, I think, of stories that have either gone down a, a good path, some have gone down bad paths, and some have kind of become stagnant in their path. I think one of the best examples is the show Person of Interest. Mm-hmm. So Person of Interest, for those of you who haven't seen it, is about two guys primarily. After 9-11, one guy created a supercomputer with a little artificial intelligence to help monitor all the communications and actions that it could within the United States in order to anticipate terrorist activity. So he created spy software with artificial intelligence. Yes. (laughs) But he also did it in a way that the government couldn't control it. It would be out on its own because that sort of power in the wrong hands would be very, very bad. But one of the things that he realized during the creation of this tool is that the computer could identify all the threats of all the people that would be threatened and all the computer sends out is a social security number. So that person is either in imminent danger or they're going to perpetrate something bad. And then the government goes and investigates whoever's number came up. But the designer realized, his name's Harold in the show, Harold realized that the government couldn't save everybody. And there were always numbers on that list that were considered irrelevant. They were known threats, but they weren't terror level threats. So people were dying that could be stopped every day. And so he decides to hire a broken down, drunken ex. Disgruntled former CIA employee. Yes, (laughs) who's on the verge of suicide to help him try to stop the irrelevant threats from happening and saving people or stopping people from doing bad things. I will say we have talked on this podcast about how in entertainment, there really aren't any other kind of CIA employees other <laughs> yeah. than the formerly disgruntled kind. Yeah. And I was talking to my cousin last night about the show Person of Interest, actually, and he loves the actor, Jim Caviezel, who plays the former CIA operative because he was also Jesus. Right. And the interesting thing that I honestly did not realize until I was talking to him was that there are times when... Jim Caviezel's character will be really violent because he's a former CIA operative. And I'm just kind of dismissive of it because he played Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm just like, yeah, well, it's Jesus. Jesus with ninja skills, really, right? Is that what you're saying? Jesus would have ninja skills, Dad, (laughs) if he wanted them. (laughs) If he wanted them. (laughs) That's a very different Bible story. Okay, so... um, So what's interesting about the person of interest story is that the show came out prior to Edward Snowden's leaking of all the NSA activity. So the showrunners realized that, wow, this show is not just theoretical now. It's on the public conscience and it's real. So that kind of altered 
their plan. The show used to be, the first season, was more about these individual people that they were either trying to stop from doing something bad or saving from someone doing something bad to them. And after the leak of that information, the story path had to change because everyone was now aware of this ominous government program that was going on that was invading all of our privacy. So the story changed in a really interesting way, and it kind of veered from more the the personal week-to-week storylines and more into what happens in a world where this technology actually exists. Which was fantastic, actually, from a story point. As a citizen, I had a very different reaction. (laughs) Right. But from a story perspective, it brought person of interest onto a completely different level. Right. When you look at that show, one of the things my brother Steven said to me once, we were talking about nuclear weapons, and we were also talking about abortion, which is an interesting combination, but this is how it fits. We were talking about, you hear people say that we can get rid of nukes, or that if you outlaw abortion, suddenly people are having abortions with hangers again. And his point was, is that once technology enters the world, you can't really get rid of it, right? It cannot be allowed to be used, but you can't get rid of it. For example, Britain has outlawed guns. It doesn't mean that they're just hitting each other with spears, right? I mean, (laughs) or whatever, or bows and arrows, right? The guns still exist. So the issue with this is that now that this technology is actually out there, the the story creators had to decide, well, we need to talk about more of this threat of the technology. The show became a little bit more about the technology. And so the show's path has veered, but I think in a very powerful way and also in an, an inevitable way in the sense that if one guy can create this technology, then the government can hire someone else to create the technology. And if the government hires someone else to create the technology... Well, then they have control of the same technology, like nuclear weapons. And so now you have these competing technologies. One is being used honorably, and the other is being used dishonorably. And who's going to win? And so it's a really cool thing, as as over the four seasons, they're entering their fifth season now, which I think will probably be their last. Usually they do 22 to 24 episodes, and this year CBS has only scheduled 13 episodes, and that's the minimum. That's a death sentence. (laughs) That's usually a death sentence. But the reason they're doing that is because I didn't realize this. CBS doesn't own the rights to that show, the distribution rights. They only own the rights to air it the first time. The production company actually has already made an agreement with WGN to run the reruns. So CBS is like, well, this is not a property that we should continue investing in because we can't get money from it after it's over on our show. So they're, they're kind of ending the show. It's kind of going that way anyway, but they're kind of ending the show. And then they're going to move on to other properties that they completely own. And that actually makes a lot of sense because I had started watching Person of Interest before I went away to college. And when I went away to college, I was no longer able to keep up with the episodes online after they had aired like I was able to do with every other show. So I remember getting really frustrated about that. But that actually makes a lot of sense now. Yeah, because all the shows that CBS owns, after they aired, they'd put them on their website. Except Person of Interest. Right, because they don't own that. So anyway, that's a great example, and and I'm not going to ruin how this is all going. Also, it's not over yet, but that's a great example of the showrunners altering the path of the show to fit the needs of the audience, and also it's taking a path which is not all that comforting, but it's the logical outcome if this technology exists in the world. If you have nukes, and we're dealing with this now in the world, if you have nukes owned by responsible countries like the United States, And then let's say a terrorist organization gets a nuke. Well, the outcome of that is probably not going to be great, right? Because their value of life, 
the rules of engagement and so forth are vastly different. So if you have a tool that knows everything that everyone's doing and only lets you know someone that may or may not be in jeopardy or may be perpetrating something, that's very different than you having full access to everyone's lives and then manipulating people, right? So that's a really cool way that the writers have adjusted. And that show, I think, is it's both very rewarding to watch that show because of that, but it's also very hard to get into late because there's yeah. so much history. You do have to start at the beginning with that show. It's definitely a I'm going to binge this on a rainy month kind of show. <laughs> so I if mean, you're in I Seattle, could... <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good pick. I could probably get through it in a few weeks, but most people aren't as insane as I am when it comes to binge watching television. So I would say probably about a month or yeah. two. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to watching the the fourth season on a binge. I've watched it live, but you guys haven't seen it yet, so we're going to watch it together. It's going to be exciting. Now, we've talked about, and I don't want to go into these in depth, but we've also talked about other shows that have not gone down a very good path as far as letting the story go where it needs to. So we talked about Fringe. The first three seasons of that are really, really good. But then the fourth and the fifth season, when they didn't expect to be renewed, kind of went off the rails because they really didn't know what to do. That show would have been amazing if it had ended in the final episode of the third season, just because the cliffhanger they left with that show was intentional and amazing. Yeah. And um, then coming back, I remember being really upset and being like, this isn't why I watched the show. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because like we talked about before, they didn't anticipate coming back. And so the characters were not in a good place to come back. Another one we talked about was Castle. We talked about that a lot lately, but the first seven seasons, the story went exactly where it needed to go, and now it's kind of lost its way. It's kind of funny. We were watching reruns of Castle the other day, and because of this eighth season, they kind of blew up the relationship and the value of love in that relationship. And so when you go back and watch the other seasons, they're on reruns on TNT. Every time there's an episode that requires love to overcome something, you just look at it now and go, well, it doesn't really matter that much because she doesn't end up staying with him. So it really has destroyed so much. It's one of those things where you buy seasons one through seven, but you don't buy season eight. Another show that we had talked about, I'm not sure if it was on this podcast or not, but we talked about the show Dollhouse by Joss Whedon. And we talked about that extensively. But basically, when you have people that can be rewired as toys for rich people, and that technology gets out, then everyone can be rewired at any time. And that obviously ends up very, very bad. But there is one show that started out so awesome and then quickly went off the rails. Oh, it was so bad. It had so much promise. It was a really cool show at first. The premise of Sleepy Hollow on Fox is that Ichabod Crane was a British soldier who came to fight the Revolutionary War in the Americas, but eventually turned to the American side and fought against the British. Something happened, and suddenly he woke up in the year 2011. Dun, dun, dun. And then he had to fight the forces of evil with a cop. Yeah, but it was cool because the Headless Horseman was still out there, and it was this mythical thing this unbeatable monster with powers and he's sides with a, a woman cop who they end up working together. And they're really, they had really good chemistry the first season. I just loved that relationship. It was great. She's a minority character. So that was awesome. I just loved so much of that. And then what happened? Everything went to crap. 
<laughs> the amazing thing about that show was that it was a cool premise. You had this headless horseman character, which was a very big threat. You had these forces of evil that was very much a case by case basis, week to week, like most crime shows are. But it still had this overarching, there's going to be an evil danger coming up. Well, and wasn't it like it was partly tied to the apocalypse, right? It was about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The Headless Horseman is one of them. See, that's awesome. It was so cool. And another huge part of the show was that you had these minority characters. You had a beautiful black woman playing the lead. You had a black police chief. You had all these people playing such prominent and important characters. And it was fantastic because you're like, like, yes, this is the 2000s. We need to be promoting these minority characters and, and showing that they are capable and strong and right. need to be taking I mean, on leading right. roles in Hollywood. I mean, it was fantastic. I that's- loved that. And the actress did such a fantastic job in that role. It was wonderful. It was really well cast. And it was just a fun show to watch. It wasn't perfect, but it was enjoyable week to week. And they left the season with a fantastic cliffhanger for season one. And then in season two, it's kind of like what happened with Pirates of the Caribbean. They had no idea what made the show successful because then it went from being this two people fighting against the forces of evil, promoting minority characters and honest work and all of this other stuff. And it was really cool. And it brought in religion in a way that wasn't offensive and talked about the end of the world. There was a lot of cool things happening. And then in the second season, it really became Ichabod's family drama. Mm. His wife was involved. And then it stopped being about promoting good people of color in Hollywood. It started being about, you know, a soap opera about Ichabod. And somehow his whole family is alive, even the fact that, you know, he was dead. Hundreds of years ago. Hundreds of years ago. Yeah, and what was really fun about the first season was that Ichabod was someone from the 1700s that's living in today's world and was appropriately repulsed by what America had turned into considering what they fought for. I remember there was a great (laughs) thing about taxation, right? He got, like, there was a 10% tax on something. He's like, we went to war over this. Yeah. And you guys have just paid 10% tax on coffee? What are you, crazy? So those kind of little things were funny, but but then it became like his wife is in it, like you said, his son is in it, right? Yeah. It's just, it's so odd. And the son's storyline in season one was actually really cool. But in season two, again, it became Ichabod's family drama. But I think what you said there is the most important part, is they didn't know why it was successful. Because you would never change, or you should never change, obviously, what is successful. I see this in business a lot, too. There's plenty of times where new blood comes into a situation, and instead of analyzing what works well, they just change things. Change for change's sake, so to speak. And I think you're right. I think these people either didn't really plan out the story so it could go where it's supposed to go, or they were directed by some focus groups or some feedback from other properties that the network had that this was going to be more popular. And if that's true, shame on the producers for allowing that to happen, honestly. It's so frustrating. Because you have this awesome premise that has lost its way, and now it's kind of, here's how bad it is, Dorothea. (laughs) Recently, Mm -hmm. they did a dual episode with Bones, your other favorite show. So I just want you to know how far they have fallen. Oh, Fox. (laughs) I, okay, I, blah. (laughs) Ichabod's outrage, though, was definitely one of my favorite parts of the show. I loved this scene. He was in a bank. And, you know, at the bank, they have the pens attached to the table. Yeah, right. And he's just, like, pulling up. And every time he pulls up on this pen and it gets caught by the chain, he looks more and more indignant. And then he turns to one of the tellers and goes, excuse me, 
These people entrust their fortunes to you, and you can't entrust them with a single pen. <laughs> <laughs> and the answer to that is no. Because the sad thing is, in reality, someone would take it. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's an overhead thing. You know, there's a movie that actually I thought was a really, well, as far as movies go, a relationship movie go, it was kind of an honest representation of a relationship at a bad place, and that's The Breakup with Vince Vaughn and Jennifer Aniston. Mm -hmm. And one of the, you know, we love happy endings in this country, right? One of the major criticisms of the movie The Breakup is that they broke up. I don't understand. Well, because people wanted them to break up and then get back together. But it didn't work out that way. It was still kind of funny. I, I mean, I think it was an average movie overall. But what I appreciated about it from a storytelling perspective is that they told the story that really needed to be told, which is a humorous breakup and the, the natural demise of that. And if you're in a relationship to a certain point, how does that affect you know how you live together and all the different ways that you irritate each other? And I thought that was funny and honest. But I agree kind of with the audiences. It wasn't very satisfying because at the end, they didn't end up together. So... But one of my favorite moments on television was actually on the show Jane the Virgin. Jane was a young woman who was accidentally artificially inseminated. I hate when that happens. <laughs> and she got pregnant and the first season is about her pregnancy. But at one point she starts dating the biological father of her child. And a lot goes on because it's a telenovela. So a right. lot happens in his life. It's very dramatic. It's fantastic. And... The boyfriend gets really overwhelmed, and so he breaks up with her. He's like, I can't handle everything that's going on right now. We just need to focus on being good parents and not worry about anything else. And she wasn't ready to accept that, so he lied to her and said that he didn't love her because he knew that would be the only thing that would make her go away. So he does that. And he's really upset afterwards after she leaves and their relationship is officially over. And his sister comes and talks to him. And she's asking him what happened, and he's explaining the situation and and he's like, I've just got to get my life together. And she's like, well, will you really be happy, though, if you don't have Jane in your life? And he's like, well, maybe once everything's better, it's like, then she'll be free and we'll be able to get back together. And this is my hands down favorite moment of the show. She looks at him and goes, mm, people don't wait, wrath. They move on. Right. Because yep. that's what happens in reality. In reality, when you have your heart broken, you move on. Right. Yeah, because it's too painful to stay there. And if he's told her that he doesn't love her, why would she wait for that? Right. A movie that I think represents a really great way of taking the story where it needs to go is the movie Seven. It's disturbing as hell, but it's very powerful in the way the story unfolds. So for those who haven't seen Seven, I won't spoil it for you, but basically there's a serial killer that is killing people based on the seven deadly sins. And the end of the movie, I remember there was a review that said, prepare to be devastated. And I'm like, wow, that makes me want to go. But my wife and I went and we walked out of the movie theater and I'm like, crap, that's exactly correct. So it's a devastating end, but it's an appropriate end. I mean, it, the story had to go there. If you did anything else in that movie, then it wouldn't be real. It wouldn't be honest. It goes back to things we've talked about before is that authenticity. The good stories, they take you where they need to go in a very authentic way. And at some point, if it alters its path at all, it feels like you're cheating. And that's what we talked about with the season's fringe or castle that went on too long that they feel like they're cheating. They're, they're, they've manufactured a storyline in order to keep getting paid, but it doesn't really fit the actual overall story arc that they started with. It's kind of like when people divide up the final movie installment into two parts. You love that, though. Remember for money and all that so that they can market it? 
We do have to talk about how irritated the Hunger Games marketing has been since the first movie. <laughs> Staring at me, it does not help the radio audience. I have no I have no comment. I have it's you, stupid. It's your subject. You brought it up. You I have know, to have but a the comment. The thing is is that it's uh, okay. <laughs> wow. Every story regardless of medium, and we've talked about this before, has a beginning, middle, and an end. It doesn't have a beginning and a middle and a middle and an end in two different things. It doesn't know. So how do you really feel about that? No. We'll talk more about the Hunger Games <laughs> in another, after the movie comes out, we'll talk about the whole series. Because it's a good subject about what, what is done well and what is done poorly. Ooh. A question came up on Facebook recently in one of the Catholic writing Facebook groups that I, I'm a part of. And someone asked, should there be cursing in Christian novels or Christian fiction? A lot of people have opinions on that question. Yes. It really goes back to what we've been talking about, which is where does the story need to go? Who populates the story? What audience is the story intended for? And so I would agree that, like, for example, in the Gabby Wells series, there's only minor language in that book because it's supposed to exist in a pseudo-real world as far as that goes. And... That's tied to the whole fact that we want the teens to read it, to recognize that this could happen in their life. So to exclude all cursing, as we've talked about, would probably not be a true representation of their everyday life. But I think there's certain lines you still shouldn't cross, even in Christian or Catholic fiction. You should never have anyone be blasphemous unless they are truly evil and should be that way. I mean, you should never take the Lord's name in vain. And you shouldn't use some of the real harsher curse words. I, I just don't think for the Christian audience that would ever really work. But I think a little bit of it, depending on the audience, depending on the characters, is a valid option. And that was the overall agreement that, you know, you could use some depending on your audience and everything like that. But it's part of that thing where you should let the story take you where it wants to go. And I've talked about this before, I think, on this podcast, but Quentin Tarantino talks about that a lot with, in spite of what you may think of his movies or his politics or whatever, he's a really good writer. And as a writer, he's talked about that, you know, the, I create the characters, he said, and then I let them do all the speaking and the acting, right? They're going to say what's honest to them. And some of that may be really offensive, even to me as the writer. But if it's honest to the character, that's what you're trying to relay. Again, that authenticity piece. So letting the story take you where you want to go isn't just related to plot. It's also related to how the characters act within the plot. But getting back to going where the story takes you, sometimes the writing takes you to places where you have to follow the consequences for making that decision. As I think I've talked about on the show, I watched the show Arrow. And the interesting thing is that I don't really like that show anymore. <laughs> I keep watching it because I'm a story addict and I need to know what happens, not because I find any enjoyment in what's actually happening on screen. Yeah, that's annoying because I have that same thing too. And there's some shows I literally, I fast forward just to see what happens because I've been invested in it too long. And I'm like, all right, I, I want to see how this show ends, but I don't really want to invest that much time in it. What really ended up happening with me and Arrow is that I don't really like Arrow as much as I like season two of Arrow. Mm. I really liked the plot line of that one season. They had a really great villain that season named Slade, who was kind of like a villain on steroids, but comic book steroids, where it makes you like an evil Captain America kind of thing. <laughs> okay. But it also had this really funny, quirky IT girl character that a lot of people really liked. And it had Katie Lotz on it, who 
is an actress, but she's an amazing fighter. So her fight sequences were just fantastic. They showed her face in multiple fight sequences because she was actually doing the stunts. As a former martial artist, I love watching her sequences. I'll actually go on YouTube and be like, all right, fight scenes, here we go. And it was just fantastic. So I enjoyed the villain. I enjoyed the action sequences. And I enjoyed that they had um, some characters that broke stereotypes. So overall, I enjoyed season two. I didn't watch season one, but I knew basically what happened. My problem is I don't like the main character as much as the supporting characters on the show. So that's going to be a problem in general. And that's my own issue. A lot of people don't have that problem. But what happened in season three is they introduced Ra's al Ghul as the villain, who in the comic books is a very formidable force. Is this the same guy who was in Batman? Yes. Okay. Because it's a DC comic book show. But in the Arrow universe on the CW, Ra's al Ghul became Ra's al Ghul by some people and Ra's al Ghul to other people. They kept changing his name, which irritated me because it wasn't a choice necessarily. It was really inconsistent as to who called him what. So that's just like a basic directing thing. Like, why? <laughs> that why is that happening? S- that's stupid. What ended up happening after that is Ra's al Ghul is the big bad for season three. So he's got the League of Assassins, right? He has no issues about killing people. He's not bound by any kind of morality. So you would think very formidable enemy. But the problem with season three is, first of all, that the theme was identity. And identity cannot be a theme for a season because it's the theme of every episode in general. TV shows are about characters discovering who they are. And every new situation tests that. So the main character saying, like, every episode, I don't know who I am, just made me want him to buy a name tag. The other thing that was really problematic is that one of the things that people both love and hate about Arrow is that they kill off a lot of people. And in the winter finale for the show, they actually killed the main character. They stabbed him and threw him off a cliff. Wow. Awesome cliffhanger, right? Yeah. But you can't kill off the main character. You have to find a way to bring them back. So it ended up being something where he didn't really die. But at the end of the season, they introduced- He survived? At the end of the season, (laughs) they introduced a thing from the universe of DC Comics called the Lazarus Pit, which brings characters back to life. That's convenient. But the thing about that is, is that now that they've killed off all these people- you can bring whoever back to life. Like, you know, and you've added a mysticism to something that was very ground in reality. When the spinoff The Flash came on the CW, the producers and the showrunners were very specific. No, Arrow is grounded in reality. The Flash isn't. The Flash is grounded in a completely different world. They exist in the same universe, but there's not going to be a lot of superpowers happening in the world of Arrow. That turned out not to be true. Because then you introduce the Lazarus Pit. And this season, Arrow has just taken things to an extreme. There's a new villain, Damian Dark, who's fantastic. The actor who plays him is awesome. A much better villain than Ra's al Ghul was last year. But he's got superpowers. And in the most recent episode I've seen, Constantine came on the show. And then they went into someone's soul to like get their soul back from the Lazarus Pit. Keeping in mind, I watched the show because of a steroided up villain and a girl who had good fight sequences. This just wasn't the the reason that I started watching the show. So I'm just like looking at this and going, once you introduced the Lazarus Pit, you had to follow that story into its logical progression. Right. But I don't know why I still invest time. (laughs) It's too convenient of a thing, right? Because then there's no consequence. Well, they did destroy it this season, the Lazarus Pit. Oh, that's nice for everyone else that may need to need it. Why, Why not just make it so it's very limited to access it or something? I mean... Put some rules around it. Have the extraordinary happen, but put some rules around it so that it can't be used whenever they want. That's just kind of silly. So yeah, I don't know why I watched that show. 
<laughs> well, because you want to see how it ends. That's that's your problem. In the Gabby Wells universe, it has been a little bit of a challenge letting the story take it where it wants to go because each individual novel adds own little alteration to that path. And the good thing is that I'm still heading where we need to go. But as I mentioned before, each subsequent novel keeps getting a little more difficult staying exactly on that path because the people are so different because of the experiences they had. So I'm trying to let the story take it where it wants to go. I'm, I'm going to be authentic. I'm going to listen to the story and, and listen to the audience and figure out what works for them and, and continue down that path. But I can understand. I have appreciation for trying to get to a destination when sometimes the story may be trying to nudge you in other ways. So it'll be interesting to see how all of that plays out. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. So, Dorothea, do you have any, I don't know, personal stories about taking things where they should logically go? <laughs> well, I don't know if I've mentioned this on this podcast before, but I went to visit a very good friend of mine in Boston, and she wanted to take me on the walking tour of the historical sites. So we did that. And there's a brick path, and you follow it, and it's kind of like following the yellow brick road in Boston. And it's cool to get to go past all of these places where American history exists, but we weren't going to go to Bunker Hill because it was far away and you can see the monument from other places in the city. And we didn't want to walk all the way to Bunker Hill just to look at it. We're like, there's, we've limited time together. We want to spend as much time as we can hanging out and enjoying the city. So we had made that decision. But as we're walking through these historic areas, we got a little lost. And I think we were actually looking for the bus stop at this time so we could go somewhere else. And she looks at me and goes, well, we're going to Bunker Hill. And I, I, I was confused. I looked at her confused. And she's like, no, because that's literally where we're going. Because we had been walking in the direction of Bunker Hill without realizing it. So we ended up going to Bunker Hill. But her reaction <laughs> was just fantastic. She's like, no, so we're going to Bunker Hill because that's literally where we're going. <laughs> it's literally the direction <laughs> we've been heading this whole time. That's really funny. When I think about my faith journey, that is a, I don't know, that's definitely going down a path that I didn't anticipate. And it apparently needs to go this way. <laughs> but it has just been so odd. From going from wanting to be a filmmaker, to being an actor, to working in television, to working in corporate America, to writing screenplays, to creating a Christian film company, to closing the Christian film company, and then creating a Christian publishing company, and then writing the Gabby Wells novels, not the most direct path. <laughs> But I've trusted the journey, and I know that it needs to go this way. But it has been, man, makes no sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. To you. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe God thinks it's funny. But it has allowed me to speak to you guys about when things in life happen unexpectedly. It's like, look, none of my path has made sense to me, especially when I was in it. <laughs> you know, when suddenly God's like, yeah, you know how I, you know, because I would pray, and I really felt that, like the Lord wanted me to do things. It's like... And then God would change his mind. And I'm like, but but, but I really like what I'm doing. He's like, yeah, yeah, I don't want you to do that anymore. <laughs> so anyway, it, it has allowed me to talk to you guys about things when unexpected events happen in your life. But I would say that I don't know where my story will end, where it'll eventually take me. But I know I don't have any say in it, really. <laughs> so we'll <laughs> see how it goes. I feel like I'm on a, like on a roller coaster that I was forced onto. And I have no idea when it's going to end. It's the best kind. I think that's life, actually, <laughs> right? You're born and then you're like, all right, strap in, go. You know, it's interesting. I love going to theme parks and I love roller coasters, but I always get really sick on the virtual reality rides. Like at being at Universal Studios, there's a Simpsons one where you get into this thing and it's all virtual reality. 
And I was literally praying on that ride. I felt like I was going to be that sick. I kept saying the Our Father and Hail Mary because I'm like, oh my gosh, this is never going to end and I'm going to hurl all over these strangers. Like, it was awful feeling trapped and stuck in that place. But I love roller coasters and you're also trapped and stuck on roller coasters. But I think I'm more comfortable with that because there's a track and you can see it. Right. So if you get, so if you start to feel uneasy, you go, but I'm definitely going to be there in about two seconds. Right. You know where it's going to end. Whereas with this virtual reality ride, we're like, I don't know, I could be here forever. I had a very similar experience, actually. It was at Disney World, and it was during grad night. I don't think they do that anymore. Yeah, I don't know. But grad night used to be graduation. All the seniors could go for cheap and go to Disney World. And I went, and on grad night, we got stuck in It's a Small World. (laughs) So the little boat stopped moving. There's a little, like, you know, one foot of water around you, and these animated dolls are singing to you the same song over and 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 over again. And because it's grad night, suddenly you start smelling marijuana. And I was just like, I can't get off of this thing. And the marijuana smell was trying to make me nauseous. So I kind of, it's a little different. It wasn't virtual reality. It was actually my life. But similar outcome, I think. Well, the interesting thing is that there was one time I got stuck on the Pirates ride. It was toward the end. It was by Jack Sparrow with all the gold. And the See, Pirates now they ride, actually have it, Jack Sparrow. They I do. Haven't, I haven't even been on it since they changed it. Oh, it's it. changed completely to Aww. be like the movies. Yeah. I like the old one. I know. But it's completely changed. But now they have Jack Sparrow with a bunch of golds at the end of the ride. And we got stuck because they were backed up or something like that. And we were right by the whole gold place. And I'm like, you know, this boat has no straps down. Like, I could literally just stand up and go and sit next to Jack Sparrow with all the gold. And I was really tempted to do that. I was just sitting because <laughs> we were there for such a long time. And I'm like, man, that would be the selfie of a lifetime with the animatronic Jack Sparrow. This would be so creepy. But then I think I'd never be able to go back to Disney. Yeah. You'd probably also get a selfie with some police officers. So, <laughs> so Dorothea, it's really important for storytellers to let the story take its path, to let it go where it needs to go. And be aware that sometimes making certain writing choices can take you down a path you didn't want to go. So you have to be careful not to introduce a pit that invalidates every death <laughs> that has ever happened. So, Dorothea, there we go. Another episode in the books. What's up? I know. You didn't do any weird voices until right now. That's not true. I'm always doing weird voices. <laughs> Just most of them are in my head. <laughs> well, that's comforting. That's it, Dorothea. Um, next time, we're going to talk about childhood relationships and how What's that, up? that oh, I shouldn't have said anything. <laughs> and the evolution of childhood relationships. That is all right. And how they play together in the Gabby Wells novels. I'm afraid to say anything. <laughs> you should know better. I know. You should know better. Oh, stop. You should know better. <laughs> Come on. All right. We'll see you guys next I could ne- talk in a southern accent. <laughs> no, stop. What, you don't like my southern accent? That I, was actually really bad. That was I, offensive to all southerners. That's I how would, bad that I just accent was just end now. The show. <laughs> <laughs> say, say bye. Peace. No, say bye. Bye. Oh, God. <laughs>